Well, we're going to come to the time in our service now. We'll look at a passage from the Bible. We will talk about what this means, why this matters, and what you should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, would you turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 6? If you're using this Brown Pew Bible, it's on page 475. If you have your own Bible, hit the book of Psalms, head right. You'll hit Proverbs and then Ecclesiastes. Chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. When you found that, would you stand together with me? And I'll read this passage for us. I've seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on men. God gives a man wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing his heart desires. Sounds good. But God does not enable him to enjoy them, and a stranger enjoys them instead. This is Hebel, a grievous evil. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive a proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning. That is, uh, the, the pain and work of labor is fruitless. It departs in darkness. That is, it has never seen the lights of the day. And in darkness, its name is shrouded. Not that it never had a name, but that the child, who it is, its personality was never known. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man, even if he lives a thousand years twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity. Do not all go to the same place. All man's efforts are for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. What advantage has a wise man over a fool? What does a poor man gain by knowing how to conduct himself before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is Hebel, a chasing after the wind. Whatever exists has already been named, and what man is has been known. No man can contend with one who is stronger than he. The more words, the less meaning. And how does that profit anyone? This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more and just ask God's blessing on this time in his word. Spirit of God, we ask you to come now as we dig into your word this morning and just asking that you would speak specifically to each one of our hearts in just the ways you want to. I'm trusting that you have worked through me this week as I've been preparing. I know you've worked in my own heart. You've brought change and transformation and uh, development and shaping. And I'm just asking you to accomplish that same thing this morning in each one of us as we spend this time. You've told us in your word that when you send out your word, it doesn't return to you void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you send it. Oh, God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us this morning. As I always ask, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue now to speak your truth? Amen. Uh, what do you think about when you're maybe walking through a grocery store up and down the aisles? Or maybe you're just absentmindedly listening or, or seeing some of those late night infomercials. And you see that sticker or you hear that announcer's voice that says, Satisfaction, 100% guaranteed. What do you think about when you hear that? Is, is there anything in your mind that says, oh, sweet, I'm guaranteed to like that product. I guess I better buy one. 
Probably not. I think most of us, we, we, we immediately meet such claims with skepticism, sort of a sideways glance like, uh, really? Now, because advertisers know that we have that skepticism, what, what, what do those ads say or the announcer, what does he add after that claim of guaranteed satisfaction? What does he say? But if you're not 100% satisfied, you can return this product for a full refund. Now, am I the only one that has a problem with this? That just seems like ludicrous. I mean, if you have to factor in a buffer for the fact that someone might not be satisfied with this product, doesn't that in and of itself nullify the promise that satisfaction is guaranteed? It doesn't even make sense. It's like going to dinner at someone's house and them saying, listen, you don't need to worry. I guarantee there's no cyanide in this stew. But just in case there is, this is the number for the BC Poison Control Center. I mean, is it a guarantee or not? Like, is it in there or is it not? It's good to know. Now, most of us, we're not, we, we see through the claims of guaranteed satisfaction when it comes to that new set of steak knives, uh, maybe that uh, belly fat eliminator, the that roller thing. We could see through that pretty quickly. But how many of us would be willing to admit this morning that we are fooled, and we have been fooled, and we've been fooled regularly by the claims of wealth, by the claims of things like uh, uh, possessions, things like prestige, things like popularity, accumulating the biggest pile of stuff that we, that we think we can find satisfaction there. That if we could just manage to have enough of any one of those things, our satisfaction is 100% guaranteed. I know I, know I continue to be fooled by those temptations all the time. Well, we're continuing in this series this morning through the book of Ecclesiastes called The Chasing After the Wind. And what we've been doing each week is following along with Solomon as he seeks to systematically prove the thesis that he began this whole book with, namely that everything, everything we see, feel, touch in this natural world under the sun is hebel. Hebel, this Hebrew word translated here in the New International Version as meaningless, but which literally translated just means mist, vapor, breath. Now, two weeks ago, uh, Kent was here and he preached uh, the passage just before our passage here, the second half of chapter 5, called The Gift of Wealth. I don't know if you were here for that message. And what he pointed out to us was how our wealth, our possessions, can rightly be enjoyed when we see them as a gift of grace from God's hand to us. That they, that they are a good and gracious gift. I mean, it says that plainly. Look at chapter 5 and verse 19. Solomon writes, When God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot in life and be happy with his work, this is a gift of God. Okay, great. That, that sounds good. It's a beautiful truth to live under but which should also lead the careful reader to ask, particularly in light of that word there when he said God enables man to enjoy them, careful readers should want to ask, okay, but what, what, what if God didn't? What if, what if he didn't enable us to enjoy those things? Great question. And that's actually exactly the question that Solomon now deals with in our passage today. 
And given what we've already read about Solomon calling this a, a grievous evil, something that weighs heavily on man, it's probably not too hard to guess how he thinks this works out. But let's look at it. Think about it. If it truly is possible to have wealth, possessions, to, to lack nothing that our heart desires and still not to be able to find satisfaction in those things during our life under the sun. I mean, particularly given what we just said about our proclivity to believe that we can find satisfaction there, I think it's probably worth looking at what Solomon has to tell us here this morning about why that is and about how we can avoid being fooled by such false advertising. And the way I want to do that this morning is by looking at a passage in just two ways. I want to show you how Solomon, what he has to say here about having plenty of nothing, and then we'll look at developing a superior taste. Plenty of nothing, developing a superior taste. So if you close your Bibles, would you open them again to Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 1. Follow along with me as we investigate now these claims of guaranteed satisfaction. So let's look first of all at having plenty of nothing. Plenty of nothing. If you look at verse 2 of our passage, you see a summary of what Solomon says in verse 1 is an evil, something that weighs heavily on men. Look with me there. He says this, God gives a man wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing his heart desires, but God does not enable him to enjoy them, and a stranger enjoys them instead. Now, for a lot of us, if you're anything like me, we read that, and we feel like Solomon is describing two completely different things that don't even belong together. It's a contradiction in terms, because how in the world could someone have wealth, possessions, everything their heart desires, and not be satisfied? How is that even possible? But it's important to acknowledge, even in asking that question, Already it reveals that the belief that having wealth and possessions is equivalent to satisfaction in life is already deeply embedded in our thinking. We just we already believe it. It means we've totally bought the sales pitch that says getting everything we desire in this life is a guarantee of satisfaction. We already believe it. But just think about that for a second. It isn't, isn't that exactly what we hear time? And time again from, from all the rich and powerful of the world who have everything we believe should make them happy. And yet still, many times, they would say they're not happy. They're miserable. They're unsatisfied. Don't we hear that all the time? In fact, most days we're actually surprised when we hear about a celebrity who has everything we say should make them happy that isn't on their fifth marriage, that isn't in therapy, that isn't struggling with addiction of some kind, or that isn't just a self-absorbed, miserable jerk. We're just like, wow, that, that's really incredible. It seems like an anomaly, even though they have everything we say should make them satisfied. What Solomon wants us to know is that the reason for that it's because the sales pitch that says having wealth, having possessions, having everything your heart desires is equal to satisfaction, it's false advertising. It's just not reality. And as the wealthiest person ever in human history, Solomon, I think he might know, right? He might actually know whether or not that's true. And yet, what? look at us. Even after seeing countless examples of this around us, 
all the time. Still, we, we pour over every uh, uh, entertainment magazine there as we're checking out with the groceries. We, we read and, and, and ingest every uh, Hollywood report uh, on TV, every uh, life of the rich and famous, every uh, uh, reality show about that star, believing somehow that if we were to have those same things, it would be different. We look at what they have and we think, I, I would be satisfied if I had that. If I had what you had, I would be satisfied. I'm sorry you're not, but I would be. Honestly, I think that's what Solomon's getting at there at the end of verse 2 when he talks about how, how this man has no enjoyment of all the things he has, but a stranger enjoys it instead. You know who I think? I think he means us. I think he means uh, us. Like As a man who had more wealth than anyone else in human history, I think Solomon is talking about all the have-nots that he would see peeking over his fence, dreaming about how much better their life would be if they had everything that he had. And what Solomon is trying to do there, uh, in, in a very real way, he's trying to take us all by the face, get our attention and say, listen to me, listen, please. I, I, I've been down that road that you're trying to walk on right now. I've, been down, I've gone down it harder and further than you ever could. Honestly, I've been all the way to the end. And, and here's the result. Although it looks like it leads to satisfaction, the truth is it's a dead end. It's a dead end, and, and, and I'd want to spare you from taking even one more step down that path, says Solomon, because it doesn't lead where you think it does. And even more than wasted steps, the sad reality is that unlike that 100% satisfaction guarantee offered by that turbo juicer or whatever, here, there is no money-back guarantee. There is no... Time spent, life wasted back, offer given. We're just left with storehouses filled with all this stuff that was supposed to satisfy us that still left us feeling empty. I think that's exactly what Solomon's getting at there in verse 7. Look there with me. He says, All man's efforts are for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. In the book of Proverbs, also largely attributed to Solomon. Solomon says it this way. He says, Death and destruction are never satisfied, and neither are the eyes of a man. That's just the thing, isn't it? Think about the last big meal you had. Sitting down for Christmas dinner, maybe it was. What happened? Like even an hour after you ate so much, you didn't think you could get another bite in. Weren't you picking at the scramble, picking at the pot of gold chocolates, whatever it is? No matter how satisfied we might be by a meal, eventually, at some point in time, we're always hungry again. And I think Solomon's point here, what he's trying to say is that when it comes to the desires of our heart, the exact same principle holds true. And in order to drive home this point in no uncertain terms, in verses 3 through 6, Solomon tells us that the one who gives their life in the pursuit of this dead-end path is actually worse off than someone who's never seen a day of life under the sun. Look with me there, starting at verse 3. Solomon says, A man may have a hundred children and live many years. And in this ancient Near Eastern context, this would have been considered the highest points of wealth. Long life, many children. 
Yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive a proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning. It departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded, though it never saw the sun or knew anything. It has more rest than does that man, even if he lives a thousand years twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity. Now, I just want to pause here for a minute because it might seem to some that this is an entirely insensitive, inappropriate kind of comparison for Solomon to even be making. If you've ever experienced the devastating sorrow of losing a child, or you know someone who has, I can understand that, that feeling. It's sort of like, man, you're kind of treading on ground. It's just you don't go there. But here's the thing. What I, what I see here is in a very simple and beautiful way, Solomon, first of all, I think is actually honoring the life of that lost child, particularly in verse 5 and 6 there. Look, when he talks about the rest the rest that this child experiences presently, now, in God's care as it awaits the final resurrection of Christ's return. Now, yes, at this point, Solomon, he's only speaking about life and rest as we can know it in, this, in our days under the sun. But for those of us living this side of Easter, living this side of Jesus' resurrection, we know Like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And Solomon's own father, David, said almost the exact same thing in 2 Samuel after the loss of his own child with Bathsheba. He said, he will not return to me, but I shall go to him. He believed his lost child was presently in the care of God. And I believe, secondly, I think people in Solomon's day and in this culture, they were just more comfortable talking about death, probably because they saw it a lot more than we do. And so for Solomon, knowing his, his comparative analysis that he likes to make, for him, it is fitting to compare the exaggerated extreme of one who lives 2,000 years with one who has not experienced a single day under the sun. And he says, this child is is better off. It experiences more rest than the one who we think has everything they should be satisfied with in life. He says, this child, more rest, more joy now than anything this life under the sun can offer us. But in the end, what that means for us all today is that as theologian Philip Ryken says so well, wealth possessions, uh, uh, the fulfillment of all our heart's desire, as well as the ability to enjoy them, are both gifts from God. They're both gifts from God, but they come separately. They, They come in different boxes. Both gifts, but they come separately. I don't know if you've ever had the frustrating experience of getting that present as a child that you were so hoping for. I want that thing. Mom and Dad, please give it. I'm going to actually be good to my sister for these couple of months ahead of Christmas, whatever it is, and you get it. You open it up, and you get that thing you wanted, only to find that there's no batteries. There's no batteries to operate it. But because it's Christmas Day, and none of the places that sell batteries are open, now you just, it's, it's like, oh, great. It becomes useless to you, even though you got what you thought would satisfy you, because you, you can't use it. There's no batteries. I think what Solomon is getting at here is that wealth, 
possession. They are God's good gifts to us, but they too come without batteries included. Why? Why? Because God likes to play cool, cruel tricks on us? Uh, because uh, he wants to keep us underneath his thumb at all times? No. No, it's because God knows the only way enjoyment is even possible, the only way you get batteries into those gifts that he gives us is when we look to find our satisfaction in the giver of those gifts, not in the gifts themselves. That's the only way it's possible. So in verse 2, when Solomon says God doesn't enable someone to enjoy their wealth and possessions, he's speaking, I think, much more of a self-inflicted restriction of enjoyment. He's saying you're doing it to yourself. He means that God can't enable us to enjoy the gifts that he gave us in a way that he didn't design them to, to be enjoyed. It's not possible to enjoy them when we look to these things to satisfy us, when our satisfaction can only be found in him. Okay, so how do we rightly enjoy the gifts then? What do, what do we do? That's what we'll look at next as we talk about developing a superior taste. Developing a superior taste. <clears throat> when you think about the passionate pursuit of wealth, uh, possessions, all the accumulation of stuff that Solomon just talked about in those opening verses, and then as well as the mist-like pleasures that they guarantee but never deliver on. How many of you heard that description and were thinking, that sounds exactly like our world today. We're totally like that. You know, that, that sounds like our city. It sounds like Vancouver. When I look around me, everyone seems to be running after, putting on a look how much I got, look at, the, look at how much I've accumulated, look at this, look at this. Or how many of you thought, that, that looks a lot like me. You think that when you read that? And listen, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled for a second into believing that just because you can't afford all the things your heart desires right now, that you're not still on the exact same path as that dead-end path that someone who can't afford it right now is on. We, we can absolutely be on the same path whether we can afford the stuff we want or not. Case in point. You ready? When I was 17 years old in grade 11 in high school, I had a subscription to Cigar Aficionado magazine. Now what in the world... Does a kid at 17 need with that? I didn't. The point is this. The desires of our heart, far they live far outside of our ability to achieve them. We always want more than we could ever possibly be able to achieve and grasp at. Plus, and we must never allow ourselves to forget this, because of sin's curse, our hearts don't work properly anymore. They don't work like they're supposed to anymore. Yes, they desire some good things too, but they also desire all kinds of dumb stuff that they shouldn't. They desire things that are harmful to us, things that can even destroy us. They want them. They run after them. Some of the worst advice you'll ever hear at a graduation address is when someone will stand up in front of the leaders of tomorrow and say to them, you know what? You just follow your heart. Young man or young woman, it won't steer you wrong. Problem is, nine times out of ten, more like ten times out of ten, that's exactly what it'll do. It's exactly, it will absolutely lead you wrong. 
It will lead you to desire things that are going to blow up your life, blow up your career, blow up your family. It's going to say, that would be awesome. You totally need to go after that. That's what your heart is going to lead you to want to do, which is undoubtedly what led the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 17, to say the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, over the past few years, I've had the privilege of meeting regularly with a friend, brother in our church who's been working patiently with me in order to develop my taste for coffee, help develop it. Now, although I didn't even know that my taste in coffee needed developing, it did. And as I've sat under the training of this coffee Yoda, this caffeine sensei, I've come to see that my, my coffee-tasting desires are being developed. They're being refined and shaped, and then so too is my coffee-pursuing behavior. It's being changed as a result of that. Now, I tell you that, and Solomon is writing about this in order to help you see that in the very same way, many of us, we don't even recognize that the desires of our heart need to be developed as well. They need to be developed too. That our tastes need to be developed and reordered so that we desire superior things. We desire, in particular, one superior thing, that is God himself above all things. And in our passage today, the specific area of focus that Solomon implores us to develop so that we can truly find satisfaction in the gifts that God gives us of wealth or whatever it is, we've already seen a number of times as we've gone through Ecclesiastes. He wants us to develop and focus on the area of contentment, of contentment in our lives. And you see it in verse 9. Look with me there. It says it very simply. Better what the eye sees, better what's right in front of you than the roving of the appetite, which is simply to say it's far better to train our hearts to be content with what we have, to develop contentment with what God has seen fit to give us right now, rather than to follow our wandering desires after the next thing that isn't going to satisfy us. It's one of the craziest things when we think we believe that getting more of the thing that isn't satisfying us right now is going to satisfy us. Why? Again, as Philip Reichen says it so well in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, because our desires are always wandering but never arriving. And that's so true. Our desires are always wandering but never arriving. As it relates to the superior taste of contentment and developing that taste, Solomon says grateful contentment with what God has already given us is infinitely better, infinitely better than the wind chasing of just adding something else to that pile of stuff that isn't satisfying us. Which, hear me, that doesn't mean desires are wrong, that we shouldn't desire to have anything more any, anymore, that that makes us you know, more spiritual Christian people. That's not what I'm saying. All those desires can be for good things that God created, and they are His gifts to us. But what it means is we no longer allow our desires to be the thing that directs us. Instead, we follow the Spirit of God and allow Him to shape, develop our desires for what He knows is truly best for us and what will truly satisfy us. Earlier in the book of Proverbs, 
chapter 30, Solomon said it this way. He said, two things I ask of you, Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies from me. Then this, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Philippians 4, Paul talks again about developing the way that he worked to develop this superior taste of contentment. He said it this way, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every and any situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. What is it? I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. It's as the Spirit strengthens us, opens our eyes to see the futility of what we're chasing after and develops our desires to want the things that we should want. That's the secret of contentment, to be grateful for what He's put right in front of us because then it is enough. We can push back against that. We can rebel. We can say, listen, I know me. I know what I need. I know what's best for me. But listen, I mean... We've seen again and again through Ecclesiastes what Solomon says again in verse 10. The rules of the game, if we can call that, they're already set. What God has put in place is, is set. And we're never going to prevail against an infinitely stronger opponent, which is God himself. You're just not going to win. You're just going to find yourself again chasing after the wind. So what do we do? How do, how do we develop a taste for contentment so that we can truly enjoy the gifts that God gives us under the sun? Well, first of all, what we do is we acknowledge that our desires, they can't be flatly trusted. They can't be flatly trusted. It means we need to question our desires a lot more than we do instead of just blindly following wherever they lead us. Next, we need to expose ourselves, put in front of us, again and again, what it is that God says we should want. Earlier in Philippians 4, Paul said it this way. He said, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Think about such things. Expose yourself to those things which you know we should desire. In Colossians Chapter 3, Paul says, Since then you've been raised with Christ, <clears throat> set your heart on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It means we pursue the things and we look at, focus on, run after the things that God says we should desire as he revealed them to us in his word, and then we say, we just pray to him every day if we need to. God, would you help me? Help me. I, my heart still wants things it shouldn't. It still desires that stuff. Would you shape, develop, mold my desires to just, first of all, just be grateful for what you've given me, that that would be enough, and then develop my desires so that they want the things that 
you think I should want, that you know are best for me and that really will satisfy me? I can't imagine God not honoring a prayer like that. Nor can I imagine him not, as we read in Hebrews 13, both equipping us to do that as well as working and developing in us those things that are pleasing to him and beneficial for us. He will honor such a prayer when we bring it to him. It was in 2008, if my research is right, that all Canadian provinces, except Nunavut, uh, enacted laws against distracted driving, which includes texting while driving. I'm not going to take a poll right now. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand whether or not you do such things. But I think we'd all probably be willing to admit at least that before those laws came into effect, that driving down the highway at at least 90 kilometers an hour, steering with our knees and trying to find the right emoji to send back to our friend who texted something awesome to us, that we didn't think that was safe then, right? That once the law came in, and then we were like, oh, now I realize how unsafe that is. We, we knew, right? But yet, still even knowing the laws, even knowing the dangers involved, how many of us still feel tempted all the time to follow that desire to try and still check our texts, still send that last little message. What we do mostly now is we just try to avoid detection. You pull up to any intersection, just look around, look into cars, you'll see people doing this. That's exactly what they're doing. Guilty here as well, which is awesome. I have a wife and kids who are like, no, don't touch your phone, no. So it's, it's, it's perfect. It was about a year ago I saw a video on YouTube where someone was interviewing all these different people and asking, they were saying, tell me about, like, you, you, you admit that you text while you're driving. Why do you still do it? Why do you continue to do it? And every single one of them was just justifying it. You know, yeah, it's probably not safe, but it's still acceptable. You know, uh, the desire to know what I'm missing. What if I missed something awesome? It just overrides the, the, the desire and the need to be safe and to follow the laws. Then the interviewer brings in a young woman named J.C., sits down at a chair a few feet across from them, tells them the story of driving home from her college graduation. When somebody texting while they were driving goes through a red light, causing an 18-wheeler to run into her car, killing both her parents instantly, leaving her partially paralyzed for life. And just sits in the weight of that for a moment. And then the interviewer looks to those people who they were talking to and says, can you look at JC now and knowing her story, can you give her those same reasons for why you think it's okay for you to text while you're driving? <laughs> and of course they all just sat there like, just, you know, bawling and like, no, of course not. Even before we heard Solomon's description of this guy here, pursuing the dead-end path of seeking to find his satisfaction and wealth, possessions, the desires of his heart. We, we already knew that satisfaction wasn't guaranteed, right? We already knew that. And I don't know if this story is, is Solomon, he's, it's just his observations, or if he's describing his own experience of chasing after this stuff and he's just sharing the results with it. But in the end, does it really matter? 
having heard the results of pursuing this path, can we really give the same excuses anymore for continuing down it ourselves? Particularly for those of us who say we know Jesus in a saving way here this morning, can we really continue to seek all those other things first and continue to seek his kingdom and his righteousness second? In his classic book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis wrote this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And yet still the loving call of our God who who left all the riches of heaven in order to free us, in order to give his life so that we may find true satisfaction through life in him, his call to us is still come. All you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen. Listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. Think about your own life for a minute. It's so easy in a moment like this to be thinking of somebody else in your mind. Man, I wish so-and-so could be here to hear this. Don't do that. Think about you for a minute. Just you. What are the desires of your heart right now, this morning, that you are pursuing in order to be satisfied? What are you running after to find satisfaction in your life? Maybe it's having more stuff, greater wealth and possessions. Maybe it's popularity or prestige, the applause of others. Maybe it's a a relationship. Maybe it's sexual intimacy. Maybe it's having a certain job or being free from having to work, whatever it is. All these things are, are good gifts from God to be enjoyed, but which will still leave us unsatisfied, we won't be enabled to enjoy them if we're pursuing them wrongly, if we're we're looking to them to find satisfaction in those gifts instead of looking to find it in the God who gave them to us. And you look into your heart and you see that you have been. You can admit this morning and say, that you have been walking down a path that you know won't lead you to satisfaction, that you know can't give you what it's promising. And can we just admit, to some degree, that's every single one of us? I'm going to ask you in this moment right now, because we'll forget in a second. Take this moment right now and just acknowledge that to God. Just confess it to Him. And then repent. Repent. Repent of that sin, which really just means to turn, to turn around. Change the direction of your heart and your heart's pursuit and turn it back towards Jesus. 
and allow him to shape and develop over time the desires of your heart to seek what he knows is best and what will truly satisfy you. Again, Solomon's father David, Psalm 37, said, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Which is just to say, pursue the God who made you and loves you. For he is the only place where satisfaction is truly guaranteed. 